All righty. So this, you could argue, is the most important class. I've said that for a number of different classes. I said that when we talked about your confirmation class and your baptism class and the nature of the sacraments. But this one's the Eucharist. And I can summarize this whole class for you just by the first couple of lines. If you really internalize this, you've got it. The Eucharist is the center of our faith. Why? Because we believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, literally. That's the simplest, that's really the summation of the whole class. If I asked you what's the Eucharist, nine out of ten Catholics would say the body of Christ. And they're right. But it almost shows that they're looking back inside their mental Rolodex and they're pulling up a card that they learned somewhere from back in the past and they're reading off that card rather than speaking from their heart. Because if you want to speak from your heart and I ask you that question, what is the Eucharist? You can just answer it very simply by saying it's Jesus. The Eucharist is Jesus. We believe it's actually him. All right? Now it's a weird belief. I admit that. It's very weird. Um, it doesn't look like Jesus, does it? It looks like a little white host. We're saying that he's under that appearance, but it's actually him. Okay. Um, the simplest way to the simplest way to put it, um, it was overhearing a Protestant who was talking to another Protestant about what Catholics believe. And the Protestant said, you know what those Catholics believe about the Eucharist? They believe that, that Eucharist, they believe that's actually him. And he said it kind of almost like as a joke, but I was like, holy smack, you, you actually got it right. That is what we believe. We believe that Eucharist is actually him. Okay? Um, he's actually there, and it's under the appearance of bread and wine. And I'll try to make this as clear as I can. It isn't bread. And it isn't wine. I know it looks like it, but it isn't. Okay, So let's try to unfold this, just to make it clear. We believe that Christ is present in many ways. Would you believe Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I myself am present there? It's true. We believe there's a presence of Christ in that. As Catholics, we also believe whenever the scriptures are proclaimed, there's a presence of Christ in that. Okay, Believe it or not, we believe there's a presence of Christ in the person of the priest. And there's one person in our parish, I won't name him, but whenever I walk by, they always bow. Little tiny bow. Is it to me? Kind of, but not really. It's because they're remembering this idea. Christ is mystically present in the person of the priest. But it's not the same as the presence in the Eucharist. Okay? Allow me to try to explain. There are lots of ways two people can be present to each other. Talking on the phone. But it's not as good as being there. Uh, talking among themselves. Uh, about um, somebody else. Reading a letter. Looking at a picture. Uh, these are all old references because I wrote those notes long ago. Maybe today I could add looking at, I don't know, Instaface or <laughs> Snap, Snapgram or whatever it is that they use these days. Um, or getting a text message. There's a presence there, but it's not the same as actually being there. Okay, None of those presences are equal to being present. So that's something of an analogy of the Eucharist compared with the many other presences of the Lord. The Eucharist is like he's there, like I'm sitting here right now. It's not like you're reading a letter, etc. Okay. Um, and let's make this also clear. You've been to Mass, you've heard the bells rung. Right? The reason why the bells are rung is because we believe that at the moment of consecration, the bread and wine change. And what do they change into? Well, to make it very clear, I state it this way. Body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ. The simplest way to say is we, they change into Jesus. The reason I use all those syllables and words is to make it clear that nothing's lacking. It's the body and blood of Christ. 
it's the soul of Christ. It's the divinity of Christ. He's actually him. Uh, the only thing you could say that's lacking is his physical form and presence. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's, it's not like you're gone back in time and he's walking around and you can look him in the eyes. But we do say that there's nothing about him that you could have gone back in time and looked him in the eyes. There's nothing about him that's not there in the host except the appearance, right? That's what we believe. Um, so we say the bread and wine cease to exist. Let me make this very clear. Some people will say, well, you know, Jesus, he's kind of like present in the bread. Jesus is not present in the bread. Jesus is present in the wine. He's not present in the wine. I know this sounds crazy, but it's not bread anymore and it's not wine anymore. Even though the properties of bread and wine remain. Okay? I used to teach high school uh, and I would teach religion. And when I told them this, I would say, I, I know you guys probably think I'm crazy about lots of things. But if you want to think I'm crazy about something and have my blessing to think I'm crazy about something, please think I'm crazy about this because at least it shows you're paying attention. I was on a ski lift once. Uh, back in the day, I used to ski. I gave it up years ago. Uh, back in the day, I used to go on a ski trip every winter. And this, you know, have you ever been on a ski lift? And you have these conversations. Okay, when you sit on a ski lift, it's you and one other person. Unless you're with somebody, you know, like your sweetheart or something like that. It's a 20-minute ride or 10-minute ride. You end up striking up a conversation. And it's always, where are you from? What do you do? Well, once you tell them you're a Catholic priest, you don't know what's going to come next, <laughs> right? So I'm a Catholic priest. And this guy, he says, you know what I don't like about the Catholic Church? I always hear that. You know what I don't like about that? I'm like, okay, here we go. You know what I don't like about the Catholic Church? This man says, I don't like transubstantiation. And I go, oh, wow, somebody who actually knows something. At least we can start talking. And by the time we were done with the ski lift, I said, hey, at least you know what we believe, right? At least you, you think whatever you want about it, but at least, at least we're honest. You're not misunderstanding. We actually believe in transubstantiation. Now, I've given you um, on these notes, Eucharistic Miracle of Lanciano, see your other form. And it says Eucharistic Minute Miracle of Buenos Aires, uh, that little two-page thing. Um, there are rare examples where after the priest says Mass, not only does we say the substance change, but it actually looks different. Very, very rare examples. Okay? I went to this town in Italy called Lanciano. It's on the Adriatic coast of Italy. And you can go into this little church, and there's this host, and it's visible for everybody to see, and there's this chalice, and it's visible for everybody to see. And it's some kind of dried up, I'm sorry this sounds gross, dried up skin. That's what it looks like. And a host, you can tell it's like this dried up blood. And the story goes that, you know, back in the 8th century, uh, this guy was saying mass and that's what happened. Well, in the 70s, I've got all the details on your notes here, um, these professors of anatomy and chemistry and clinical microscopy, uh, they examined it and they found that it was human heart tissue they found that it was blood type AB, which, by the way, is the same as the Shroud of Turin. You ever heard of the Shroud of Turin? Yeah. Burial cloth of Christ, it's supposedly. They took blood samples. It's type AB, all right? Um, which I don't know. the. I can't remember the, the neat qualities of blood type AB, but there's some neat quality about it, and it almost seems like it's ideal that it would be Jesus' blood type, but I can't remember what it was. Um, the same proteins, the same percentages, all these things. And they found it to be, so, that, so there it is. The, my favorite Eucharistic miracle is the next one. Okay? The Eucharistic miracle of Buenos Aires, 
1996. I'll try my best just to summarize it rather than read it. But this priest says Mass. This host he finds left on the floor. He puts the host into the tabernacle in a cup of water, comes back the next morning, and not a host is in a cup of water, but this bloodied substance, several times bigger than the original host. So he takes it to uh, his bishop, who happens to be Arch, who happens to be Bishop Bergoglio, who's now Pope Francis. And, uh, and, and he sits on it for three years. Three years. And after three years, he has the thing taken to New York City. Okay. I'm not reading them. I'm trying my best to remember it. So there might be details in your writing that I forget. And he says, and he has somebody take it to New York City, and he has it taken to this lab for analysis, and this doctor, Ricardo Castagnon, is the neurophysiologist who looks at it. And he says, well, what do you think about this? And he says, uh, well, um, it, it's human heart tissue, it's blood type AB, and he says, well, is there anything interesting about it? He goes, well, it comes from a man. Anything else interesting about it? Well, the man comes from the Middle East. Anything else interesting about it? Well, i tell you what's most interesting about it is like it has this incredibly high white blood cell count. And the questioner says, why is that interesting? And he goes, well, i tell you the funny thing about white blood cell counts this high, they only happen in a time of extreme trauma. And I go, what do you mean extreme trauma? Well, like imagine if somebody had a gun to your head and you were going to die in 10 minutes. Like that kind of extreme trauma might put your white blood cell count up this high. Anything else you can tell me about it? Well, whoever you took it from, you must have taken it from like 10 minutes ago because white blood cells, you know, they, they die within minutes. So, you know, this is basically the same as living tissue. You must have just gotten this from somebody. I said, no, this was a mass. It was said three years ago in Argentina. And this is what happened to the host. The, the man ended up converting to the Catholic faith because of it. And that's all in your, that's all in your notes here with, the, with, with some more detail. So occasionally, uh, you get these rare examples of, um, of Eucharistic miracles. Okay? Just to make it clear, the moment of consecration is that part of the Mass where the priest holds up the host and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And when I talk about the form and the matter of a sacrament, the matter is, for the Eucharist, it's wheat bread and wine of the grape. Can I say Mass with pumpernickel? Can I say Mass with uh, rye? Can I say Mass with gluten-free bread? Actually, I can't. There's a special host that's made and it's approved for use in the Mass. It has the itsy-bitsiest, most microscopic little tiny bit of gluten in it. And it counts as bread. But if it's absolutely completely gluten-free, I can't I can't say mass with it. And that's why we actually offer the Eucharist under both species here, cup and host. We've become a mecca here at St. Jude for people who have celiac disease and they can't receive any gluten at all because we always offered the... And there's some people, they bypass the cup. They bypass the host, they go straight to the cup. And one of the points I want to make clear here is that they actually receive communion. It's very important to know is that you don't get half of Jesus in the host and the other half in the cup. What if you're afraid of germs and you can't eat gluten? Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Okay? Um, you don't get half of Jesus in the host and the other half in the cup. And one of the points I want to make here is um, you can't divide Jesus in half. So if you receive the host and the cup, have you received communion twice? Yes or yes? Yes. You've actually received communion twice. Is the host the Eucharist? Is the cup the Eucharist? If you receive from the host and the cup, have you received communion twice? Yes, you have. And so sometimes people will say, well, geez, I, I don't want to only get the body, I also want to get the blood. 
believe me, nothing's lacking in the host. Nothing's lacking in the cup. It's both. It's called the principle of concomitance. And the idea is that Jesus is holy and completely present. And I said that I would make this point and then come at it by all these different angles. I'm now coming at it by yet another angle. You, okay? So, um, 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 Jesus' body and blood, soul and divinity, under either form, you, you can't divide body from blood. So if you skip the line and you go straight to the cup, uh, you've received communion. If you, if you skip the cup, you, you've received communion. Um, and just to make a, a point, because it's come up in questions, including this evening, um, there's a funny thing about the cup. People who receive from the cup don't get germs. I receive from the cup last of all every single time I say mass, which is daily. Everyone has received from the cup and I'm last finishing it off. If anybody would get sick, it'd be me. Um, And they've been study after study after study after study. I don't know whether it's alcoholic properties. Maybe it's a miracle. I don't know. But for some reason, it doesn't communicate illnesses. It just doesn't. Um, and I think I'm living proof of this. I've been doing it for I've been doing it for decades, quite literally, daily, and I never get sick. So, uh, so there's your answer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, colds. Um, I, I got to keep going. No, I don't even get the sniffles. Okay, <laughs> just go. to make a long story short. Uh, okay. So, um, little tiny extra point here. Christ is still present as long as the appearances of bread and wine remain, because again, it's a sacrament. If I dissolve the host in a cup of water and it doesn't look like anything but a cup of cloudy water is it the Eucharist? It's actually not. When the host is no longer recognizably as a host uh, there's not a sacrament there anymore. There's no matter, there's no form. Make sense? Okay, if I take a cup full of what was the wine which I'm going to call the Eucharist under the form of the cup and I dilute it I dilute it Tons is the Eucharist. Means that yes, it's not. When it's been diluted so much that it's well, just to make a long story short, I don't want to get into the reasoning of this. When it's more water than it is Eucharist, and you take it up over fifty percent, we say the form has been lost because the matter has been lost. Does that make sense? Allow me to just give you a parallel case. If I take this chair and I chop at it with an axe to the point where you no longer recognize it as a chair, is it still a chair? No, it's now a pile of pile of kindling, okay? So the form and the matter are meant to go together. If I take the matter away, that is to say the wood, is the form, that is the chair, can it still exist? Not without the matter. It's just in your memory, right? It's not a chair anymore. So similarly, if I take the the matter away from a Eucharist, the point you lose the matter is the point you lose the form. Make sense? Okay. Um, It's been said that this takes as long as 15 minutes to happen in you something to remember when you're in the parking lot, okay? Okay, um, Okay. now, let's talk about defending this idea, all right? Now, among non-Catholics, you mentioned this, and I found there's two reactions. Either they think you're either very badly mistaken, one form or another, or perhaps you're crazy, or they think it's the most amazing idea they've ever heard. It's usually... It's usually they think, well, you know, you don't understand and this, that, and the other thing, and they have all these reasons why it's not what you think it is, or perhaps they think you're crazy. 
But there's another, act, there's another reaction, and that's the one I want to focus on this evening. They think it's the most amazing idea they've ever heard. I, had, I saw this firsthand. I'll just tell you a little story. I took a tour in Spain with my college choral group. I was in a choral group in college, and we sang Baroque, polyphony, multi-part, sacred music for Mass. And we all went over. Well, they weren't Catholic. I was the only one who was Catholic. And we're touring Spain, and you know what a monstrance is? Okay. A monstrance is a great big gold container that you'll put the host, the Eucharist, the host in, and you'll show it. You'll see these at Mass. You'll see these sometimes in processions. You'll see them sometimes in pictures. We have one here. Well, in, in Spain, they have monstrances. And again, things meant to hold the host for a sacred procession or for prayer. They have monstrances. They're seven and eight feet tall. And they're ornate gold. I mean, it must, have, it must be a 200 pounds worth of gold. And it must have been 20 years for them to make this thing. Carve it, shape it. It's an absolute stunning marvel. So they'll show these things in museums in Spain, right? Because it's too, it's too valuable to leave in a church. These things are in museums now. And so I'm going through these museums with my students, and with my classmates, I'm sorry to say, we're all students. And they look at this thing and they say, what is that? Because they always brought their Catholic questions to me. What is that, they ask. And I say, well, that's a monstrance. And they say, what's a monstrance? I say, well, it's meant to hold the host. And they say, what's the host? And here's, here's where I can finally tell them what we believe. I say, the host, well, we Catholics believe that's actually Jesus. And I got one of two reactions. They either thought I was crazy, stupid, foolish, badly mistaken, or they thought it was the most amazing thing they'd ever heard. Now, among those who thought it was the most amazing thing they'd ever heard, they would always follow up. They'd be like, oh, wow, you actually believe that's him? I wish I could believe that too. Convince me. And that's what I'd like to try to do with you, okay? I'd like to try to do with you. Okay. The way we convince ourselves is we ask ourselves these following questions. Number one, what have Christians believed from the beginning? And this is where I give you this page right here, okay, where I have quotes from ancient church authorities. You can read them at your leisure. Um, But what you find is that these people all confess that this Eucharist is not a memorial. It's not just... um, uh, a, a, a pious uh, imagining. We actually believe this Eucharist is actually him. And they say it in all kinds of different ways and I, you know, all across the, the, the ages here. And you can, you, can, you can look at them, you can pick out your favorites. But that's why I included that page for you. So you can look over that on your own. What have Christians believed from the beginning? Okay. Um, one of my favorite uh, answers to that is that for the first thousand years Nobody thought it was just a symbol of Jesus. Nobody. The first person who comes along and says, well, you so maybe it's just a symbol. We can actually put a date and a name on this guy. His name was Berengarius of Tours. He died in the year 1088. Now, a thousand years, that's a long time. It hasn't even been a thousand years since 1088. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're talking a thousand years of everybody knowing that this Eucharist uh, is the sacred presence of Christ, right? So what if Christians believe here in the meaning? That's one of the ways we know that it's, that it's actually him, okay? Um, another thing here to take a look at is what did Jesus say in the scriptures? Right, we'll, we'll take a look at that in, in just a second, but I make a little appendage to your notes. After the Eucharistic miracle of Buenos Aires, I've got a long little section here, you can read it on your own, of John chapter 6. Now John chapter 6 is the best writing in the whole Bible in which the special nature of the Eucharist, which I'm trying to describe to you, 
The special nature of the Eucharist is described by Jesus himself. Okay? And we'll get to that in just a second. So what did Jesus say in the scriptures? What have Christians believed from the beginning? And the last one, and I do believe this is very important, what's the effects of this belief on those who believe it? All right. Um, but let's take a closer look at this. What did Jesus say in the scriptures? Because I already have for you what have Christians believed from the beginning. What did Jesus say in the scriptures? All right. Let's just think about what this means. Because if you're a cradle Catholic, or even if you're just growing up in Western society, um, and you talk about the body and blood of Christ, you know, it doesn't really shock you. You've heard of Sacramento, California. You've heard of Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, you have, even if you're not Catholic, you've got friends who are, and you've heard of their first communion. And it's not a surprise, okay? Um, but let's let's try to make it shocking. Let's let's really try to hear what, what's being said here. Let's try to imagine what Jesus' first listeners would have thought. Here's a rabbi who says, "Eat my flesh, drink my blood." What if Martin Luther King said that? Just picture this. Martin Luther King's at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, and I have a dream today. You know, people live together in brotherhood. Oh, and by the way, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'd say, you'd say, you'd say, what? Wait a minute, I was with you with the, you know, I have a dream kind of thing, and the brotherhood kind of thing, but you, but what? You know, um, imagine Abraham Lincoln, you know. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers started, oh, by the way, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'd be like, wait a minute, what? I was with you with that whole Gettysburg address and these hallowed men shall not have died in vain, but eat my flesh and drink my blood? Are you crazy? It's a crazy thing to say, right? You'd think they'd lost their mind. Now, let me take it a step further. It was expressly forbidden by the Old Testament, it's in the book of Leviticus, for you to eat flesh and drink blood. So here comes a rabbi contradicting the book of Leviticus. I'll get to that in just a second. But it would have sounded insane. Um, and that's important to understand. Uh, I had this conversation once and with a student, and, and the student really took offense at what I was saying. They said, gosh, let's eat my flesh. Isn't that cannibalism? Hmm. And I said, good for you. Good for you. It's, no, it's not cannibalism, but at least you're paying attention, right? At least I've gotten through the, the malaise of, you have heard this all your life, at least you're thinking of how crazy this sounds. And I really want you to, to understand, if you're going to be a Catholic in today's world, you've got to be ready to be countercultural. It's hard. Um, they, it won't be long, I promise you, before the general rank and file of the secular public is going to f- zero in on the mass and they're going to call us cannibals. I, mark my words, I'm a prophet, all right? Someday, they're going to say, do you know what those Catholics believe? They believe they eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. They're practicing cannibalism and human sacrifice inside those churches. Guaranteed, right? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I say that is because that's what happened the first time the practice of the Mass went into basically pagan society. When the first time the Mass was celebrated in Greece, with the days of St. Paul, those who, and you can look this up, it's documented, those who still followed pagan rituals, Aphrodite, Zeus, or the Roman emperor, said, do you guys know what those people are doing? They're, they're practicing human sacrifice and cannibalism. There was a subculture in Greek society called the, called the mystery cults, and they had some kind of parallel case, and it led the, intellectual, the intelligentsia and intellectuals of Greece to say, oh, these Christians, they're just another one of those mystery cults. They're just like the rest of them. And we said, nope, nope, we're not. But still, the first... It, it, I predict this is going to happen, okay? So you heard it here first. 
Um, Jesus was really clear about this. As I said, especially in John 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. And then people got up and walked away. Okay? People got up and walked away. Um, And remember, these were his disciples. These were people who were already following him. Says, John says there were people who no longer continued to be in his company. These are people who were already following him. And it's the only time anyone ever left Jesus for doctrinal reasons. People left Jesus when they were crucifying him for their own safety's sake. Uh, people left Jesus for cultural reasons. The only time anybody left Jesus because of what he taught was this time. Now, if he just meant it was a symbol, then why didn't he say it was just a symbol? Twelve times he says... I'm the bread come down from heaven. Four times he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. In the past, whenever he was misunderstood, he clarified himself. And I've got examples of that. The parable of the sower, the parable of the talents, the death of Lazarus. He was misunderstood and he clarified himself. Here, people are walking away from him about something which contradicts the book of Leviticus, Okay, which I'll explain in just a second. And he did not clarify himself. Instead, he doubled down. He said it again and again and again. Amen, amen, I say to you. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, Amen, amen, I say to you, that's his way of saying, this is really important, listen up. Okay? He meant exactly, he meant exactly what he said. He couldn't have been clearer. And just as a little interesting side note, the passage of Scripture in which people walk away from Jesus because of the Eucharist, I can cite you chapter and verse. It's John 6, 6, 6. Coincidence? I think whoever numbered it did that on purpose. I really do. Um, by the way, the one who numbered it was... Oh, it's a, it's a long story, but um, I don't want to get into that. Okay. Um, uh, it's, 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 you clinch one's thirst. I, okay. Um, um, this, like I said, this is one teaching Jesus could not get wrong. It was strictly forbidden in the holiness code of the book of Leviticus. And the reason why is because of what pagans did. Let me, let me describe. I had a friend in college who did... We had exchange programs. He did um, environmental studies, foreign study in Kenya. And he lived out in the, in the wilderness with these Kenyan bushmen. Um, basically primitives. Basically living very similar life to how they've lived for thousands of years in Kenya. And they had a ritual in which they drank the blood of a gazelle. And they took gazelle blood in a, in a, in a cup and they passed it around and every bushman drank the blood of the gazelle. And he told me he drank raw gazelle blood. Okay, And the reason why they drank the blood of the gazelle was they said that it would give them the speed of the gazelle. The blood of the spirit, and the blood was the spirit and life of the beast. That's why Leviticus said, don't drink the blood and eat the flesh. Okay, The spirit and life. What did Jesus just get finished saying? Everything I've, got, I've said to you is spirit and life. This is one spirit and life you do want to drink in. Okay. Who can amend the word of God? Who's got the authority to amend the word of God? Only God can amend the word of God. Has he done it before? He has. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount, and he gets up there and he says, Of old it was said to you, you shall not commit adultery. But what I say to you is, and all his hearers are thinking, Wait a minute, Moses told us you shall not commit adultery, because God told us you shall not commit adultery. Who are you? Who are you? To, 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 to tell me what you say. Well, you'd have to be God. 
to add something to that. Well, here's Jesus amending the word of God, right? In this case, you do want to drink in the spirit and the life, right? This is body and blood you do want to drink in. Consider this as well. Consider the use of words. The authority of a speaker can make something real. If a cop says you're under arrest, guess what? You're under arrest. If the umpire says you're out, guess what? You're out. Well, Jesus says this is my body, this is my blood. Guess what? It is. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that's a very important point. Last thing I want to draw your attention here is uh, look at the lives of those who believe. By its fruit, you'll know the value of the tree. The saints relied on the Eucharist like food or water. Ever since records have been kept on canonization, every saint has had a devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. I love this little quotation that I give you here from St. Cyprian. Third century. Now, what's going on in the third century? Christians are being, they're being killed. We're talking the 200s A.D., it's still the Roman Empire. It's still the days of the persecutions, all right? Christians in prison would want the blessed sacrament so they would have the strength not to deny their faith. Give me communion so I will be able to resist, they said. Okay. Now, either they're the most deluded fools or they had a real belief that made a real difference. And as I've mentioned to you before when I talked about the saints, you want to know the value of a medicine? Take a look at what it does to those who take it. The Catholic faith, when lived fully, makes sinners into saints and this is important I think this point is very important every single person is capable of not just becoming a good person but actually becoming holy that's the effects of the lives who believe it here's another interesting one that I found the people who leave the church one of the first things they do is deny this it's just bread they'll say because you can't leave the church if you think that it's really him and if you do think that it's really him and you leave the church, you'll be back. I've seen this happen. The first thing they'll say is, well, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, not, it's just bread. Who's, who are we kidding here? I hope I've given you reasons to believe that it's not. Others will be like, yeah, it's the Eucharist, but... And then they'll hedge and they'll haw. And they'll say, well, you know, the, it's, it's, Luther talked about consubstantiation, and I don't really know what to believe... If they believe it, they end up coming back. I've got a little story for you here in, in your notes. A priest who left the priesthood and the Catholic faith to become a Mormon. Now, that's a big switch. I don't know what you know about Mormonism, but it's so far away from our faith that we don't even believe that Mormons are Christians. Do you know that? It's so far away from our faith. It's a long, 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 long story. Uh, I don't mean to give you a lecture on Mormonism here, but Mormons believe that Jesus was once just like us. And that you can one day be just like Jesus. One day you'll be somebody's God with your own universe. I kid you not. That's cool. Um, collab, right? What's that? Is it collab? Oh, I don't want to get too far afield with it. But this guy went so far that he became a Mormon. And a priest called him on the phone. And he goes, how can you turn your back on Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament? And that one question turned his life around. He basically realized, I, I, I can't. One of my friends from, uh, from high school was in a real dissolute life. We were sleeping around and all this and drugs and all this. and um, We had a discussion once and we talked about the Eucharist. And, I, and he ended up, we ended up saying, he ended up saying to me, if I really believed it was Jesus, I, not only would I turn my life around, I'd, I'd come to Mass every day. Well, he turned his life around and he started coming to Mass every day. It took a while, but he did it. Um, so uh, the question you've got to ask yourself is, do you believe this? If you don't, I ask you to pray about it. 
I've given you reasons, but reasons aren't faith. You can get a very, very well-catechized person who can recite back all these reasons for me and still not believe. Believe me, belief is, a, is a something supernatural. Uh, um, and and you got to pray for it. you got to ask. you got to pray for that. If you don't feel like you have it, pray for it. I believe you'll get it as a gift. I speak from personal experience. I once believed this intellectually and intellectually only. And I prayed. I said, God, would you please fill in the gap of faith from my mind to my heart? And he did. And that's actually preceded me going into the seminary and becoming becoming a priest. But here's a little interesting question for you. A case study in the seminary. A church mouse scurries across the altar, grabs a host right off the right off the plate, scurries away and goes back into his mouth hole, mouse hole, and the, the mouse in his mouse hole eats the host. Has the mouse received communion? Yes or no? The answer is no. The mouse did consume the Eucharist because what the mouse consumed was the Eucharist. But there's a difference between consuming the Eucharist and receiving the grace of communion. And the difference is you. Okay? That's why I say here, are you a man or a mouse? There's people, they'll come up and they'll get the host, and they'll be body of Christ, amen, and they walk away. And about three seconds later, they're going to fight with their spouse. And they're not too different from that mouse who scurried across the altar, grabbed the thing, and ran away. A priest I know says, most people have more faith in a bottle of Tylenol than they do in the host. Because when they take a Tylenol, they actually expect it to do something. If it doesn't cure their headache, they're like, what's the problem? But they receive the, they take the host and they walk away and they're no different and they're not surprised. I just want to kind of make this point. Catechism, which is what I'm giving you, reasons. They're good. They serve their purpose. But catechism is to your soul, kind of like what your skeleton is to your life. You need it. Right? You've got to have a skeleton. You're a sloshing mess of slosh. And you won't live very long because you won't be able to breathe. Um, uh, but your skeleton is just like the structure that your body and therefore your life depend on. And this catechesis is kind of like your skeleton. I've given you a pretty decent skeleton here. But you've got to be the one to ask God to give you the life. And that's a very, very important thing. Okay. So it, what are the effects of the Eucharist on those who believe? Um, they're really amazing. They bring the body under control of the spirit. You ever wish that your actions were more in line with what your ideals are? The Eucharist brings the two in line. You know, St. Paul says, I do the evil that I don't want to do. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. Anybody ever woken up and had the greatest of intentions for the morning and they're going to eat well that day and they have a slice of Melba toast and herbal tea for breakfast and they have cottage cheese and a salad for lunch? Halfway through the afternoon, they eat an Oreo cookie. Before dinner, they finish the rest of the bag of the Oreo cookies. They go to sleep saying, what the heck's the matter with me? Right? I do the evil that I don't want to do. You get the point. The Eucharist brings the body under the control of the spirit. You want that. We all want that. Okay? It's the single best means of growing in chastity, patience, temperance, any virtue, you name it. Okay? Um, God desires to enter into your soul. The Eucharist is God entering into your soul. Listen, um, a man and a woman, the closest they can possibly be is 
physical, but that physical means nothing if it's not spiritual, right? Right. Uh, a woman recognizes that more than a man does. Uh, a man can be physically united with a woman, uh, and he can kind of compartmentalize that, brush his hands of it, and walk away. The woman, more than the man, says, wait a minute, if you were with me in body, how can you not be with me in spirit? We, we want to be united with one another in spirit. God can be so united with you that he can actually become your very life. No two human beings can get that close. Um, but you can kind of understand, like, from a love point of view, how two people might kind of, like, spiritually speaking, want to be that close. Does that kind of make sense? Because God can do it. That's all. That's what the Eucharist is. He gets so close that he's your food. He's your life. He's your strength. That's my best rationale for why Jesus did this. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He once said of, of the Eucharist, Jesus said, take this, all of you, and eat of it. Jesus did not say, take this, all of you, and understand it. And that was his best way of grappling with it. So I can't fully understand it either, but that's my best understanding of it. He wants to be so close to you that he's your very food and your very life and your very strength. And since God can do anything he wants, that's what he does. Okay? So this is why it's so pleasing to God that you receive communion well. Uh, each reception of the Eucharist increases that grace, which is sanctifying grace, which is your friendship with God, um, which takes place to the degree to which you've made it possible. Okay? Now, guidelines for receiving communion, there's a few little rules in place. Um, take a look at this quotation from St. Paul. If anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup unworthily, he will be held to account for the Lord's body and blood. A man must examine himself first and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If he eats and drinks unworthily, not recognizing the Lord's body and blood for what it is, he eats and drinks a damnation on himself. So in other words... Um, well, not only do you need to know what you're doing, uh, but you need to make sure you're receiving it worthily. Which, by the way, is why you never just give out communion to people. Uh, there's no such thing as drive-through communion. It always takes place in the context of a mass or at least a communion service. Okay? Um, you don't just get communion unless you've had instruction, which is what I'm giving to you now if you haven't made your first communion yet. Um, and it's related to a couple of things. Number one, why can't Protestants receive communion? People will often ask this. Let me answer this to you in two ways. The first way to answer it is there's one instance in which Protestants can receive communion. This always surprises people. But if somebody expresses a belief in what I've just gotten finished describing to you, they know what Eucharist is, they don't misunderstand, they know what it is, and they're dying, they can get communion, no questions asked. Okay. It has to be a danger of death. Otherwise, you're, if, you, if you want to be a Catholic and you want to receive communion, you should enter into the church, which is what people do in RCIA. Okay? Um, but the real reason why Protestants can't receive communion is because since ancient of days, the word communion means a communion not just with us and God, but with us and one another. In other words, it's the fullest expression of being a full member of the church. If you're not a full member of the church... You take that full expression and you weaken that full expression. We've just said that it's you're a full member of the church, and yet here's somebody who's not a full member of the church and they're receiving it. That's why Protestants can't receive communion, because you can't say you're a full member when you're not a full member. The symbol actually means something. I mean, if you were in the army and you wore three stripes on your sleeve saying you were a sergeant, but you were only a private, 
there's some kind of discipline for that. You, those three stripes mean something. When people see those three stripes, they expect it to mean something. Similarly, the Eucharist as a communion, meaning a full membership in the church, that means something. Um, and, well, the full membership isn't there. And that's why Protestants can't receive communion. Okay? It's not that we don't think that they're good people. It's that it's always been a sign of full communion, which, by the way, is why Catholics aren't supposed to go to the Protestant service and take their communion. It works both ways. We believe it's a, it's a sign of full membership. So you, you shouldn't, you know, if you're going to Methodist church or whatever, I think I told you my, my, my dad was United Church of Christ. I went to visit my grandmom. My mom was out of town. Mom says to grandma, make sure you take them to church. Well, she took us to the United Church of Christ. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I didn't have to stand, I didn't have to sit, I didn't have to kneel. All I had to do was sit there and listen to a great big long talk, which means I could zone out. I didn't have to get up and get communion. They passed this plate around to me and little shots of grape juice and a little bowl in the middle of like looked like little chiclets, like little chips. And you took a chip and you took a shot of grape juice and you passed it to the next guy. This is the greatest church ever, I thought to myself, my 11-year-old self. I got to... Next time that happens to you, now you know you shouldn't do it. Why? Because we don't believe, we believe it's a sign of full membership, okay? Um, Secondly, if you're in a state of serious sin, you should go to confession first. That's where we say, if you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink in damnation on yourself. Don't unite the Lord to sin. If you're in a state of serious sin, we've already talked about serious sin, you should go to confession before you receive communion, all right? Um... Thirdly, little tiny discipline, we ask you to fast before receiving communion. One hour, it's not not too much to ask. There are tons of exceptions to that. If you're taking medicine, you can take your medicine. If you're a caretaker for someone, uh, you know, who's taking medicine, um, they don't expect people to cook their meals at different times. The caretaker can also receive communion and break the Eucharistic fast. Um, But basically, this is asking so little. It's just saying, just don't chew gum or eat a donut or drink something before you're receiving communion. Just take an hour at least and prepare yourself spiritually for what you're about to do. Okay? And a very, very small minor point, you can receive communion twice a day. There's a little rule you can receive communion twice. You can go to two masses a day. Um, and why do we have that rule? Because there's some people that are so pious that if we didn't have a rule, they'd go to mass Ten times a day, they just they do nothing but go to mass, and it's sort of like a God's way of saying just don't, okay, just don't. Now, lastly, I've got a really neat little thing that I've drawn up for you here, and it's these notes called the Eucharist and the Passion, okay, and you can read this on your own, and I find this really really interesting. It describes the Last Supper as a seder meal, okay, and I'm not going to go through all this because you know there's too many notes for us to go through all this evening. But it describes the Last Supper as a Seder meal. Everybody knows what a Seder meal is, right? The Jewish Seder meal that they have on Passover. On Passover, Jews have a Seder meal. And um, uh, there's the eating of unleavened bread, and there's drinking of cups of wine. And the first, the Last Supper was a Seder meal. It was a Passover Seder meal, okay? So what I do here, I describe the Seder meal in here, and I say there's something very unusual about this Seder meal. I'll quick summary of this. In a Seder meal, you drink wine four times. Okay? Jesus only drinks wine three times in the Last Supper. And before the Seder meal's over, he gets up and he walks away. The Seder meal is a ritual. It goes from beginning to end, just like Mass does. Before the Seder meal's over, he gets up and he walks away. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. You've heard of the Garden of Gethsemane? Sweating blood? Okay. He just skipped 
the rest of the Seder meal, and he didn't finish the Seder meal because he didn't drink the fourth cup of wine. He says, I won't drink again until I drink again, until, um, I'm sorry, my my mind is drawing a blank on the quote. Um, um, It's in your notes. Um, In the kingdom of God, okay. And he gets up and he goes away. And, And then the whole passion starts and he's crucified. And in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John only, he says, I thirst. Now in every other Gospel, they gave him sour wine. Have you heard this before? Yeah, from a sponge. From a sponge, and he won't, and he won't, and he won't drink it. He turns away. He didn't turn away because it was gross. Let me explain this to you real briefly. First of all, are you familiar with these scripture references I'm making right now? If you don't, none of this makes sense. Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they offer him something on the cross. Jesus won't take it. They're actually offering him a pain sedative. It's the gall of a dead chicken. It was actually a little tiny act of mercy. He won't, he won't drink it, and it's not because it's gross. Um, but in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John only, Jesus says, I thirst. Now, think about that. Is he dying on the cross, and then he suddenly thinks, saying to himself, boy, I sure could use a drink. He says, I thirst, and in the Gospel of John it says, they offered him wine and he drinks. And then he says, it is finished. Bows his head and dies. Now, what is finished? The Seder meal's finished, the Last Supper is finished, the act of redemption is finished. And the point that I want to make about the Mass, which we'll talk about next week, is that the Mass is being present at Calvary. The Last Supper and Calvary, the Mass, and our Lord's uh, offering himself on the cross, it's numerically one. When he drinks from the fruit of the vine, when he's hanging on the cross, and it's only recorded in the Gospel of John, he's finishing the Mass, he's finishing the Act of Redemption, he's, 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 he's finishing what he started with the Seder meal. And that's kind of like a scriptural underpinning of this idea, which I'm going to talk about next week. Mass is not a pious memory of Jesus. Mystically speaking, it's a presence at Calvary. Like I said, that old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Mystically speaking, you can say, actually, yeah, I was. I wasn't there in time, but that past event was made a present reality for me, and that's what it means to go to Mass. Um, so you can look over that on your own. I thought it was kind of cool. That idea came from uh, from Scott Hahn. Have you heard of Scott Hahn before? 